to the very first episode of Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. Each week, I'll talk to an eminent scientist, creative, or thinker about the steps they took to make it big. To kick things off, I have an incredibly special guest for you. He's a big freaking deal, no doubt about it. But uh, before we get into that, I just want to say thanks for listening. And if you enjoy the show, I'd appreciate it if you give Cognitive Evolution a follow on whichever platform you may listen through. You can also follow me on Twitter at Cody Commerce or sign up for my newsletter on my website. I have a truly all-star lineup of scientists, especially in the field of psychology, coming up for you in the next few shows. So for our guest today, I first encountered him at a cognitive science conference, I believe in Los Angeles. I heard him speak. The topic was on why psychologists should do more public-facing outreach. And he was truly one of the most compelling people I'd ever heard in the whole field. He doesn't just talk the talk, he truly operates on such a high level with so many different projects going on from his podcast, Two Guys on Your Head, to his remarkably consistent writing for several different outlets, including Psychology Today and Fast Company, not to mention his books, the most recent of which is Bring Your Brain to Work. He is also the founding director of the program in the Human Dimensions of Organizations. He is the Annabelle Irion Warsham Centennial Professor of Psychology and Marketing at UT Austin. Without further ado, I give you Art Markman. Art, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Oh, it is absolutely my pleasure. Yeah, I'm excited. This is going to be great. So... Uh, you live in Austin, and that's, right. that's pretty much the musical capital of USA. I understand that you play uh, saxophone in a blues band. Uh, I, I do. Actually, we're a blues and ska band. Oh, well, um, how, how long have you been doing that? Well, so, so I actually was a, um, a piano player as a kid, and in my mid-30s, I, I took up the saxophone because I'd always wanted to play another instrument. And back when I was in middle school, my, my mother told me that I played the piano and shouldn't take up another instrument. And in my mid-30s, I decided it was no longer her fault that I didn't play another instrument. So I took up the sax, and after 10 years of, of learning, uh, joined, played a blues band in a blues band for a while, and, uh, and I've been playing in this ska band now for about three years. Wait, so you, you actually learned a new instrument wholesale in your mid-30s? That's correct. Yes, That's I, like one of those perennial things that everyone wants to do. It's like, oh, I'm finally going to pick up that instrument that I've always uh, wanted to do. And you actually did it. Wow. I, 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 that's right. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I had read the research on regret. And if you look at Tom Gilovich's work, yeah. he, he went out right and interviewed a bunch of people in their, in their 70s, 80s, and 90s at, at old age homes and, and found that that uh, the thing that people regret when they're when they're towards the end of their life, their biggest regrets tend to be the things they didn't do, rather than regrets about the things they did. So I did started, you learn any languages while you were at it? Yeah, you know, uh, I I didn't. I have been lucky enough to be around a lot of people who are fluent in multiple languages, and so yeah. while I have 
precious little ability to say much in anything other than English. I have been, I have pretty good receptive fluency in a bunch of other languages because I've been around them. Oh, really? Anything, anything kind of like uh, surprising? Any, you know, probably Spanish because you live in, you live in Texas, but anything, so, anything else? I have some Spanish. Uh, my, uh, so my wife is, is from Israel. Oh, so wow. I, I have actually learned, I, I have pretty good receptive fluency in Hebrew Wow. Uh, to, to the point where um, if there are people speaking in a conversation in Hebrew, I will laugh at all the right places, but then they turn to me and ask me something and I stand there and am not actually sure what to do after that. <laughs> wow, that's great. Um, okay, cool. Well, um, so just to get a sense of uh, what you do professionally, can you tell me what, what does your average day look like? Yeah, so it's interesting because my average day has, uh, has I think, changed a lot over the years. Um, I started off, I think, with a, with a career that, that looked a lot like a traditional research psychology professor where I spent a lot of my time teaching my classes, uh, doing experiments, meeting with graduate students, da analyzing data, writing papers, uh, reviewing manuscripts. Uh, about 12, 15 years ago, I started doing a little bit more public outreach, and I'm sure we can talk more about that, but, but that began to creep into my day, writing blog entries, uh, uh, later doing, doing a podcast of my own. And on top of that, I began taking on more other kinds of assignments, some of which emerged from the public outreach, like engaging with companies and doing a little bit of consulting work, and some of which became administrative assignments. So I, I was the founding director of the program, the Human Dimensions of Organizations, which is a, a cross-disciplinary program that, that looks at people in workplaces. And we developed a master's program and an undergraduate program and seminars. And so I, I was spending a lot of my time working with faculty to develop that program and, and meeting with potential students who might want to come into the master's program. And then this December, I became the director of the IC Squared Institute, which is a think tank and, and what's actually called a think and do tank that, that looks at economic development. And so I, I work with faculty to develop research projects. I work with the staff here on research projects in, in largely in, in rural areas and, and, and small cities. And, uh, and then I, uh, and I continue to do public outreach work. And so, um, you know, my days may involve meetings with people and then some manuscript preparation and then proposals to foundations and, and agencies that might want to support research and coordinating lots of activities. So it's a, it's a, it's a pretty general hubbub. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt you do a tremendous amount of different stuff. Uh, one thing that caught my eye though, was I saw that you're a scientific advisor uh, for Dr. Oz and Dr. Phil. How, how do you even how do you even swing that? <laughs> so, you know, as I mentioned, I, about 15 years ago, I, I began to think about doing public outreach. And a lot of that came from the belief that that scientists need to explain to the broader public why the research we're doing is interesting and why it matters. And that question could be answered in many different ways. But if we expect there to be public funding for the kind of work we do, we have to get out there and let people know about it. And, and there, there are many more psychologists who are doing that now than there were 15 years ago. But when I first started doing this, I, I was just talking to everybody I could about 
about the importance of doing this. And uh, one of the people I talked to was uh, at that point the director of the Federation for the Advancement of the Brain and Behavioral Sciences, who then got contacted two weeks later by the Dr. Phil show asking if if they knew of people who'd be willing to serve on their advisory board. And, wow. and they, they got back to me and said, so how serious were you about this outreach stuff? And the next thing <laughs> I knew, I was on the board. You know, I, being on these boards is is largely an opportunity to, I, I occasionally get to hear about programs that they're going to be implementing where I can I can have some input on how to slip a little bit more science into people's days. And uh, the most tangible um, evidence of being on the advisory board, particularly the Dr. Phil show, is that, is that Phil has been very generous in allowing members of his board to promote things that they're doing on his show. And so uh, I've written several books and, uh, and he's been kind enough to have me on the show to launch each of the, uh, of those books, which is, yeah, that's uh, really cool. has been kind of, and it's fascinating just to see behind the scenes of what happens on a, on a, on a, on a real daily TV show. Yeah, that is really cool. So, so was this transition a conscious decision, right? You said you had, you know, this belief that more people need to know about what we're doing just because it's better for them and it you know if we're publicly funded so is that actually your thought process in that or yeah it, at- it, it really was i i was I, in fact it, it traces to a particular moment when uh, about 15 years ago once again there were members of congress who were debating whether to cut funding in fact perhaps even to eliminate the social behavioral and economic sciences directorate at, at the national science foundation or at least that that's what the director was called at that point and I just, I got furious. I, I kept saying, you know, somebody has to explain to these people uh, why this research matters. And then I realized, well, if somebody has to do it, what if I pretend that it is literally my fault that people don't know why the work we do is important? And, I, and, and so I, I went from there to say, okay, so if it's literally my fault, what could I do differently? And that, that led me to find ways to try to do outreach, and and that led to an opportunity first to what, start. What blocking. was the very first thing that you started on? Uh, so the first thing I did was to ask around, like how could I how could I reach out to people? And and one of the very first things I did was actually to give a few talks to some local companies, just because they were willing to have me come and speak. And then soon after that, somebody from the public affairs office here at the university went was was traveling in new york and she met with the editors at psychology today when they were first starting their blog site so this is this is about uh, a little over 11 years ago i think wow so you were on there from the very beginning uh pretty much yeah they're they i think the blog site had only been in operation for a few months when i when i got my account there and i i think i passed 11 years in june of this year wow that's amazing. Do you know, do you, I, I know they keep track of uh, views. Do you know how many times overall your articles have been viewed on Psychology Today? About 10 and a half million. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it's uh, pretty crazy. I mean, when you, yeah. when you think about writing scientific papers where if you have a grand career, I mean like a grand yeah. career, your work will be cited 20,000 times. Yeah, yeah. So, and then, but if you just go through like the, uh, you know, the the archives and that sort of stuff where people do preprints today, you're you're talking really really interesting papers. You got you're talking 70, 70 views. Right, right. You know, maybe exactly. a couple hundred if you're famous and it's really interesting. Right. Uh, but yeah, to have have reader readership in the the millions is is, is pretty cool. 
What yeah. uh, so what, what points were were you a tenured faculty at UT Austin when you made that decision? Yeah, so I was I was actually lucky enough to move to Texas with tenure. So I had been an assistant yeah. professor at Columbia and uh, and and Texas Texas in order to generate a competitive offer actually offered me tenure which uh, which was kind of a nice thing. Are you from but, Texas originally? No, I'm actually from the New Jersey area. Uh, oh, okay. And so and so actually I was much closer to home when I was teaching at Columbia, but uh, but back in 1998, I found myself walking through Austin, Texas, trying to figure out why why New York was the place I should be living, and uh, I had a hard time answering that question, and I ended up here in Texas. It sounds like it's worked out pretty well for you because you stayed it, there. Darn, yeah, no, it's been it's been terrific. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't. I, there's not a day that I regret having having moved. I mean, I loved my colleagues at Columbia. It was a wonderful time for me and I learned a lot, but, um, but this has been a, a fantastic move. Um, so one thing I'm curious about is, so there's pretty wide consensus that you shouldn't do anything besides science, just very straightforward research in your area of expertise until you get tenure and then you can do, you know, whatever you want. And so I'm, I'm curious, do you think you would have been able to do something like that to make a decision uh, when you were in your personal career uh, before tenure, and then do you think that that kind of thing, what's your take on that advice today? Do you think that's the kind of thing people can do just from the beginning, or do you think it's really important to get established and then build from there? Yeah, so I have, I have mixed feelings about the kind of advice that people give, because I, I generally believe that the people who are going to be successful are ones who find ways to be successful whatever set of decisions that they make. That is, if, if you're going to be productive and you're going to um, get things done, you manage to do that regardless of, of a variety of kinds of decisions that face you. And so let me, let me explain what I mean by that. Um, one of the things I did in my fourth year as an assistant professor was to write a book aimed at the academic community uh, called Knowledge Representation. That um, that that I just felt like I had to write. And before I wrote it, I went to all my colleagues and I said, "Should I write this book? There, there isn't a book on knowledge representation. I thought it was really important for the field to have one. Should I do it?" And and all of my colleagues gave me the advice, a, a variant of the advice you were just talking about. They said, "No, don't do it. Uh, instead, you know, get tenure and then you can write whatever you want." And uh, and I said, "Yeah, all right." That's nice, but I did it anyhow <laughs> because I wanted to, because yeah. it was important to yeah. me, and and I think that that that's that's such an important thing. You know, you 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 have to follow the stuff that you're excited about. Now, I had to do experiments and and write up that work. I had to be known for something in order to get tenure, and I, I think you have to you you can't sacrifice too much of what you're doing in order to establish yourself in the field. But I but I think that you can. You can buck conventional wisdom a little bit as long as you keep your eye on the overall package you're creating. Now, I will say when it comes to public outreach that one of the dangers is you learn a lot about your field as you progress through the ranks of being a professor. So early on, you are an expert in the thing you do. I mean, early in your graduate career, you're, at best, you can sustain one set of experiments because you're just trying to figure out how everything works. And it's only later 
that you get more perspective on the other areas of the field. You know, so as a cognitive psychologist, it took a long time before I had read much in social psychology or in, in uh, IO psychology or in, in clinical psychology. And so if you're going to do public outreach, the public doesn't necessarily know the boundaries of your particular discipline within psychology. And so having that greater degree of perspective that comes with just spending more time meeting with colleagues, hearing other people's talks, reading more more broadly than just what you did for a dissertation ends up having a positive impact on your ability to be an effective communicator. So I, I do think that there are other reasons to want to wait a little bit before doing too much outreach, but that doesn't mean don't do any. It just means that that it's it's hard to be effective as a as a broad communicator early on because you're still mastering the field. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so I want to talk a little bit more about earlier in your career, maybe during graduate school. And uh, I know you did a podcast recently on imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. and then you were also talking just now about uh, you know all your colleagues said one thing and you kind of you know just went along with it anyway. <laughs> that takes some confidence. And so I'm wondering, uh, you know, even even for someone who's who's confident in what they do, they're still dealing with that problem of, oh, you know, how what right do I have to to be here and uh, to participate in all this? Am I am I do I really deserve to be a part of it? How did you deal with that sort of thing in yeah. graduate school? That's a you know, it's an interesting question. And for me, it actually started as an undergraduate. So I I have fond memories actually of uh, taking classes as an undergrad and going to a professor's office hours for the first time, I remember I, I couldn't, I literally could not breathe. I was so scared to <laughs> which, talk which to a Which professor was it? Do you remember? Professor. You know, I don't remember. It was, it was I, the first professor I ever talked to was my, was, was my, was an English professor for a poetry class I was taking. Oh, wow. I was just scared to death. And, and this was, this was a guy who was, probably 28, you know, and, and, you know, fairly new, but still it just, you know, there was this mystique about college faculty that, that, you know, I wasn't scared of my high school teachers, but somehow college professors were inaccessible. And, and that persisted for me. I, I had a really hard time meeting with faculty and talking with them for probably my first two years as an undergrad. And then two things happened that, that changed that. One was in my, at the end of my sophomore year in college, I took a linear algebra class taught by a guy named Frank Stewart, who unfortunately passed away about two years ago, but he was at the age of 91, I mean. But he, he taught linear algebra using computers and, 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 you know, at that point, the computer was, a, a you know, the old fishbowl Mac computer. And he wrote this software to do all the matrix transformations that you do when you're learning linear algebra. And he constructed this beautiful final exam in which you had to learn the last set of major concepts in linear algebra, which have to do with the geometric structure of, of matrices. You learned them in the process of doing the exam. And, and. The exam was so beautifully constructed that halfway through, I had one of those, those amazing moments where 
you know, the, the heavenly choir starts to sing, the shaft of light comes down, and I just, it suddenly all made sense to me. And I, I, I remember running across, leaving my dorm room, running across campus, and walking into, into this professor's office, and just looking at him and, say, and saying, I, I got it. And he gave me this smile, and he said, good. And then I went back to my dorm, finished the exam, and he wrote me after that, and I ended up serving as a teaching assistant for him for, for a, about a year and a half after that. And that was, that was one piece. And then the second was, I was a cognitive science major as an undergrad, so I wasn't a psych major. I actually didn't run an experiment for the first time until I was a graduate student. But I was taking a class with, in artificial intelligence with a guy named Tom Dean, and, and I remember going to his office, still scared to death, and asking him a question, and then he responded, and then I said something to him, and I don't even remember what it is that I said. But I remember I said something, and he put his hands behind his head, and he sort of looked up at the sky for a second. He said, well, I never really thought about it that way. And then he proceeded to think about it for a moment, and then responded to my question, and I suddenly realized, oh, I, I can say something, that would make this other person think differently than they'd thought before. And it, it began to put me at ease that, that I was able to, to, to participate in conversations, that it wasn't, it wasn't scary a thing. And I think that experience had a, had a big impact. Those experiences had a big impact on me moving forward and, and I think eased my transition from being an undergrad to being a, a graduate student. Wow. Uh, <laughs> I love that story with the uh, linear algebra professor. Um, and it, that seems like it ties into your sort of long-term interest in knowledge representation and that sort of stuff. Was, oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Sort of yeah, Was yeah. There, in fact, in fact, my book, Knowledge Representation, has a bunch of, in, in the section on spatial representations, has a whole bunch of linear algebra in the book. Yeah. Um, so... Oh, and by the way, wasn't knowledge representation one of your most cited, most you know, like uh, influential works from your career? Uh, it, it oddly enough, yeah, it, 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 turned out, <laughs> it turned out that people read it. Yeah, um, uh, which which just goes to show, you know, that uh, you it seems like you made the right decision on that one. Yeah, well, it's, it, my dad always told me it's better to be lucky than good. Right. <laughs> well, that's a fact, right there. There's 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 that's scientifically proven. Yeah. Um, so did you always know that you wanted to do the grad school route to do uh, research uh, to become a scientist? Did you sort of stumble onto that? Was that uh, something that you're, you know, sort of uh, was spreading you by your parents? How, how did that work for you? Yeah, so um, I, I did not always know. I'm not one of those people who at, you know, 15 said, hi, this is what I want to do for a living. In fact, I have vivid memories of having a, 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 a boisterous argument with my mother after my freshman year of college, she said, promise me you'll go to graduate school after you'll graduate. I said, I can't promise that. I don't know what I want to do with my life. So I'll go to graduate school if it's the thing I need to do. But, um, and she, you know, and, and so we, we had this, this long discussion. But, um, but, but when I was, uh, as, as a, I guess around my sophomore, junior year, I began to realize that I, I became a major in cognitive science. I really enjoyed it. And I was a student in the 80s when I graduated from college in 1988. And 
computers were kind of slow and stupid back then. And so even though I was really interested in artificial intelligence at the time, I didn't feel like the kinds of programs you could write were sophisticated enough to approach the kind of intelligent behavior that I was interested in. And I had another formative experience actually with the same professor, Tom Dean. This was a different class that I was in of his where he, he was teaching a seminar on robot planning. And we, the class, uh, we, were reading, we read a paper on navigation, on how ro robots navigate through space. And it started with this little experiment that uh, the researcher had done, tracing the way that people walked through the Rand building and learned to navigate this complicated interior layout. And, and we, we started reading that we started talking about this paper in class and, and the professor made a bit of a disparaging comment about doing experiments on people as a way of bootstrapping your way into doing uh, a computer model. And the graduate students in the class who were all students of his laughed. And I remember saying, wait a second, and proceeded to give this impassioned defense of doing research experiments on people if you wanted to understand intelligent behavior as everyone else in the class stared at me with some mixture of shock and horror <laughs> yeah. and and as i was doing this i actually had one of those moments in which i was both speaking and analyzing the situation and i remember in that moment thinking i i might be a psychologist <laughs> and uh, yeah. and soon after that started meeting with the cognitive science faculty in in the uh, at the university and asking them for advice about applying to graduate schools in psychology and ultimately decided to go that route and uh, and ended up uh, as a graduate student at the University of Illinois but yeah. uh, but that was and and I I did end up going to graduate school straight from being an undergrad and you know one of the things that I think I benefited from it was the lack of of a, of a worldwide web and and the reason I say that is because the, the job market, the academic job market in psychology has sucked for as long as I can remember. It was bad in the 80s. It's, I mean, it was probably great in the 1960s, but I wasn't there for that. <laughs> um, it was bad in the 80s. It's been Well, that's kind of reassuring in its own way that like, you know, people that it's always been bad. It's not just bad yeah, now. Right. It's this is not a new thing. But yeah. I, so I, I went to graduate school just assuming, you know, I'll go to graduate school and I'll do my thing and then I'll get a job as a professor somewhere and then and then and, and that'll just all happen you know not understanding in any visceral way the how how small the odds were that that was actually going to happen yeah. and so you know ignorance can be bliss and you know again I I was incredibly lucky I mean I and and that's not to say that I didn't work hard I I did but so did lots of other people so it's yeah. it's not you know, it, you, there's just there's a lot of capriciousness that that influences people's careers, and I think we have to acknowledge that. But for sure. But you know, so I, but but I just I went and just committed myself to this, figuring it'll all work out somehow, and then it all worked out somehow. Yeah, um, I, I have this uh, life motto, which is uh, dumb enough to start, smart enough to finish. Yeah. Which is. You know, if you were actually to know what it took to like do the significant thing you want to do, you would never start it because it's like it's just too much probably to take on that if you actually knew what you were getting into, you if you were smart, you wouldn't do it. So you yeah. kind of have to be dumb enough to, to yeah. take on the task. But then like once you're in the middle of it, you're like, OK, well, now I have to figure out how to actually do it. Right. So you have to be smart enough to, to make it happen. Yeah, um, I, that's kind of. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's yeah. I think that's absolutely right. I think it's it's uh, it, a little overconfidence uh, goes a long way. Yeah, yeah, just to get started. So yeah. was there uh, so you started off as a cognitive science major. You still uh, identify as a cognitive scientist today. You were broadly interested in thinking back then. You're interested in thinking today. Did you go through through shifts in your interests, like major shifts? Probably not like starting off in like a wet lab and then moving into to human subjects or anything like that. But um, but yeah, yeah, would you describe that there were major shifts in, in the things you're interested in? Well, I, I think if you if you if I look at the whole trajectory of where I've gone, there have clearly been shifts, but they've been, you know, they've been, you know, I think each each step was a logical step. So, I started off studying, working with with Dedry Gantner and Doug Medine, and 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 doing work on on similarity and analogy, which was work that that was coming out of both of their labs at that point. I mean, Dedry Gantner having done just tremendous amounts of work on analogy and Doug uh, Medine help, uh, and, and Dedry collaborated to really begin to think more about the implications of that for broad similarity. And that's and also, I, by the way, one of those supremely lucky things where that is one of the great topics of cognitive science. And you were with the people who were doing the best work on that during the peak of uh, the most interesting, you know, probing into the most interesting questions, right? Yeah, no, it, again, yeah, it was incredibly lucky. You right? were, that's a very much a right place, right time. Oh, uh, heck because, yeah. Because, you know, what you were a part of there was so big, and it's just not possible to find that everywhere at all times. No, no, it, it was it was so lucky, and it was, it, it was, it was, you know, Doug and Dedry at the height of their collaboration together, uh, you know, fortunate to be, um, to, to be in a in a lab that also had Rob Goldstone, who became a, you know a huge figure in the field. Uh, you know, Illinois at that time had had just a number of great faculty. So in addition to Doug and Dedry, you had Brian Ross and Gordon Logan, and you know, it, it, yeah. It, I mean, again, you know, I, I wish I could say I planned all this stuff, but I just I ended up in a in a in a really wonderful position. So I, I started off doing this work on, on similarity and analogy. And then, you know, there's this obligatory first paragraph you write in any paper on similarity that says we care about similarity because of its in, implications for, and then you list your five favorite other cognitive processes, which which we always viewed as a promissory note that, that if you actually learned something about similarity, that at some point you'd actually go back and say something interesting about those other areas of psychology. And so I then started to do a little bit of work on categorization and on decision making, which took on a life of its own uh, after after first just trying to uh, apply the work on similarity to those areas. And that in its own way led to other ventures like studying decision making led me to start thinking about people's goals because I, I wrote a paper actually with Doug Medine on, on on the implications of of some of the work on similarity, the the distinction between alignable and non-alignable differences that we had uh, that we had looked at in similarity. We looked at the implications of that for decision making. And one of the reviewers of the paper said, well, so we did this paper where we where we had people making decisions between paragraph descriptions of video games. And the question was, when people justified their decision, did they focus more on the alignable differences, that is the properties that each of the options had corresponding values on, or the non-alignable differences, the elements that were unique to one of the items? And people systematically biased their justifications towards the alignable differences. And 
one of the reviewers said, well, this is interesting, but it's not really about decision making because you're not studying the decision people are making. You're studying the justification. And the, the editor, you know, didn't, didn't buy into that particular criticism. But I began to think, well, why didn't we pay attention to the decision people made? And I realized it was because we didn't really care which game they picked because that would require knowing what people want. And cognitive psychologists never know what people want. Yeah. And then I was trying to figure out why that is. And I realized, well, it's because cognitive psychology lost the study of motivation right. back in the 1950s because sure. computers don't really need motivation to do anything. And so motivation went to animal behavior and to social psychology. And so I started getting really interested in motivation and started collaborating with different people, including uh, Miguel Brendel, who had been a graduate student at Columbia when I was teaching there, and then uh, later uh, working with some of my colleagues here at, at the University of Texas to, to study motivation. And so these other topics came creeping in in different ways. Yeah. And, and so that, you know, that influenced what I was doing. And then other things would feed back. So I started doing this public outreach work, which led me into opportunities to do a little bit of work with and consulting for companies, which then led me to start thinking about the relationship between psychology and the business community, which then put me in a position to help start the Human Dimensions of Organizations program, which was a kind of broadly liberal arts-based program to look at, at uh, how people uh, can understand people. and. You know, that then put me in a position as I spent more time talking with people in the business community to think about the way that we could research the, the, the broader, business, uh, broader business issues, which then led me to the IC Squared Institute where I am now. So, yes, things have changed and each step made complete sense. But it feels a little bit like one of those games you play where you start with one word and you change a letter and change a letter and change a letter and suddenly you've got, you know, a completely different set of words. Yeah, it's some sort of uh, genetic algorithm or something. Yeah. Um, was there was there ever a time that you thought about quitting and doing something else? No, no. I, the beauty of academia, from my standpoint, is uh, if you if you have enough success that they give you tenure, then at that point you're free to reinvent your career every few years if you choose to, as long right. as you're productive doing something. And so. Um, I think if I had just continued doing the same thing over and over and over again, I would have been thinking about how soon will I be done with this. But I've, I've had so many different, significantly different jobs over the course of my career so far. Yeah. That Is there anything that you said, like, prospectively, that like, okay, once I get tenure, then I'm going to go do that? <laughs> um, you know, I... I, I I got out of the habit of that pretty early because early in my, I mean, it was after graduate school, but, yeah. but soon into my assistant professorship. And I think the reason for it was I found this pattern of behavior I had where I would say, as soon as X happens, things will be better and I'll be able to do what I want. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it was as an undergrad, it was as soon as I get into a graduate <laughs> program, that'll be oh, it. Yeah. Yeah. And then it was, well, as soon as I get my first year project done, or as soon as I pass my quals, or as soon then as then I'll I, be on track. Then I'll be on track. Then I'll as soon as I defend my dissertation, and then yeah. after I finished it at, at Illinois, I ended up having a two-year visiting faculty position at Northwestern, and and so then I then I was like, well, as soon as I as soon as I get a a tenure track job, 
And, and I, while I was an assistant professor, I, I began to think, you know what, um, I'm actually living now. <laughs> right? It's, it's, if I keep, if I keep, uh-huh. I, I began to realize, I, I keep assuming that I actually had this mental image. So here, here's back when I was 15 years old, I went to the Grand Canyon and I hiked sort of down into the Grand Canyon for a couple hours with, with some, some other people. And then, and then we hiked back up and the way up, you know, you, you walk on these switchbacks. So you, you know, it's just, you, you sort of walk you know, a hundred yards and then it switches back and you walk the other way and it's back and forth and back and forth. And after a while you're walking back up, you think we've got to be close to the top by now, right? It's got, it's got to be around the next bend. And then you get around the next bend and it's another path. And, and I had this, I, I remembered that as I was thinking about this pattern of thinking I had. And I realized that even at the time I neglected to point out to myself, I'm in the Grand Canyon. <laughs> right? Why am I so worried about what's what's around the next bend on this path? I'm in the Grand Canyon. Yeah. Right? And and I sort of feel like, you know, I got to a point in my career where I was thinking it I keep thinking it's around the next bend, but you know, I'm I'm doing this. I'm in this job that's amazing. Let's just have fun with that and then and yeah. not worry so much about what I could do next. Yeah. And so and and I think that was the point at which I started doing these things that from the outside might feel riskier, like deciding to write a book as a fourth year assistant professor, uh, instead of just doing what my colleagues told me to do. Because, you know, you're in the job. If you keep waiting for permission to do something, then you you don't do it because everyone's always got an opinion about how you're supposed to do stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So what approximately what age was this? Hmm. Uh, would have been uh, in my mid twenties, maybe. Okay, yeah. About- that I I still feel like that's potentially earlier than most people have that sort of that realization, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, it was it was well, it was an interesting time in my life. I was I was maybe a maybe in my maybe my second year as an assistant professor. I think part of it was um, my my first kid was born at the end of my first year as an assistant professor, and I think. You know that just forces you to kind of take a step back <laughs> and think about the you know the whole the whole circle of life and all that stuff. And I I think you know that that helps right it, that that you begin to think about what am I what am I actually trying to do? Like I'm actually in life already. Yeah. I, I can't keep waiting, you know, to, for for life to happen. You know, and I and and I I think one of the things that I that I've come to realize over the years is that is that life is chaos in the forward direction. You know, there's yeah. just there's all these things and and life only makes sense when you look back on it. Right. And and so in the moment you just have to you just have to do things. And then and the story will unfold when you look back on it and that and that means that I think there are too many people who edit their life story in the forward direction. Like they have this, they have this idea of how it's supposed to go, and so they they do things that are conform to what they believe is supposed to happen. And yeah. and the problem the problem with doing that is that you you are then reliant on whatever your imagination is to determine what the story looks like because it, it has to be something you came up with if you're going to edit in the forward direction. But if you let things yeah. happen, the world is way more interesting than than anything you could dream up. Yeah. And and so yeah, let so it happen. Yeah. 
It's uh, that kind of reminds me of the same motivation behind the classic Hemingway quote, "Write drunk, edit sober." Uh, yeah, which uh, is sort of that same idea of like, look, when you're doing the thing, you just kind of got to get out there and do it, and then you know, like later on, we'll see what happened, and we'll we'll you know see see what worked and what didn't. We'll we'll kind of take it from there, you know. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's funny. Um, so, uh, who did, who did you look up to during those sort of formative years as a as a graduate student? Was was there anyone in particular that you kind of uh, you know, was like, wow, that person is, you know, what I want to be when I grow up. Huh. Yeah. You know, I was just lucky enough to be around a bunch of really interesting, smart people that I could draw things from. Um, you know, I mean, it, D- Doug Medine and Dedrick Gantner were amazing people to work with, incredibly yeah. intellectually open, uh, full of um, wonderful advice. I frequently find myself still to this day giving advice that I got from the two of them. Uh, so, so that was that was. Absolutely Is there anything but, uh, that comes to mind off that, like a like a like a, a nugget there? Uh, well, you know, so for example, one of the things I tell students all the time, and Doug Medine once told me when I was thinking about taking classes in graduate school, he said. Uh, he said, bias your classes towards the things you wouldn't be able to learn if you just read this stuff on your own. Yeah. You know, which I just thought I hadn't really ever formulated it that way. But it was, you know, I mean, it meant take, take, you know, overrepresent things like statistics classes in your, in your coursework because it's just hard to learn statistics by yourself. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I, there are just things like that, that, that I find myself over time, you know, repeating to others. And, and so that, you know, there was a, there was, there was advice. There was also, I, I think, a level of passion and commitment to the field. And if anyone who's ever hung out with Dedrick Gander, you know, she brings, she brings a notebook taking notes at dinner. <laughs> you know, you go out to, to a conference dinner with her and she's taking notes. And, oh, and you know, it's yeah. just that, that kind of be the willingness to be all in on something yeah. is, is inspiring. You know, there was no sense of cynicism about, about this. Yeah. You know, and and that I think that was that was really wonderful. You know, when I got to Columbia uh, and I was working there, I mean, I was a cognitive scientist and I was in a department that had very little cognitive psychology. I had my my, my wonderful colleague, Dave Kratz, uh, who, who's a one of the one of the wonderful measurement theorists yeah. around. But but, you know, a lot of my colleagues were were social psychologists I mean, I was lucky enough to be in this department with, with Walter Michel and, uh, and Tori Higgins and Bob Krauss. And, you know, I just, just learning from them. I mean, I would, I, I, I was I, back in, 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 in the mid nineties, I did a, a study trying to look at the influence of communicating about things on the categories that people form. And I'd had this idea that it just, that, that, you know that we were st- we we always study categorization by looking at the way people classify things, which is not the way people actually learn categories. You know, we learn categories because we 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 talk about them with other people. And so I was trying to find some way to do this, and I'd come across these kinds of referential communication tasks, like you know Herb Clark and his students have looked at. And I I thought, well, what if we what if we looked at that and tried to understand the categ- the categories people form in the process of communicating about something? We ended up doing this with Lego models and having people talk about Lego models as they built them collaboratively. So one person had the instructions and the other one had the pieces. And I, I found myself in a department in which both Tori Higgins and Bob Krauss had done 
a lot of work with these kinds of referential communication paradigms. And I just remember walking into their offices and saying, so I'd like to do these studies. What are all the things I'm going to screw up if I just do it on my own? <laughs> yeah. And they told me. Yeah. You know, they just laid out, don't do it this way, do it this way, you know, and, and they just gave me invaluable advice. That, Did you find new things to screw up? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> that's that's the joy of doing anything new. But but yeah. I, but but the um, but but a lot of the things that I screwed up were things that that still made the experiment I did usable, I just had to do a follow-up, right? Yeah. As opposed to screwing up something so basic that you burn a bunch of time and money and energy on something that then ends up being, you know, hopelessly confounded or something. Yeah. So, so just, you know, having people around who were willing to share like that was, was really, really wonderful. I mean, I, and, and what, I, what I really learned from, from all of that was, I mean, here are people who are incredibly successful. You know, yeah. they, they were, you know, I mean, people who are, who even then, I mean, Tori Higgins at that point was still, was, was already a, a kind of, you know, extraordinarily well-known figure in the field of, of social psychology. And, and that's only continued. But here, here, here I was with, with these people who were then incredibly generous with their expertise. You know, they, there was, there, it was just, it was, let me help you to do the work that you're going to do better. And that was that was just I mean it it was it was an incredibly valuable socializing experience in in the sense of giving me a sense of what it really means to be a colleague. Do you think it was important that they had a pretty different knowledge base than yours, like that they were a social psychologist and you were a cognitive psychologist? Uh, yeah, I don't know. That's a that's a really good question. I maybe maybe I mean I I think that that what's fa what fascinated me about all all of those people is that, and, and this goes back also to, to graduate school with Doug and Dedry. These are all people who are incredibly successful, but not necessarily deeply competitive, yeah. at least with their colleagues. There was some, there was always some degree of competition implicit in the field of, you know, our, our research lab versus, so like, as, you know, with, with, with Dedry's research lab, there was always a kind of friendly rivalry with Keith Holyoke and his, right, his right. students, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't hostile and we still it wasn't all like a zero sum game or anything like that. Right, exactly. You know, and so, you know, I, I, I feel like, you know, part of the lesson from that was just, you know, let's just get some work done. You know, yeah. it's, and, and, and I think, you know, the, and, and actually the, the University of Texas psych department when I got here was also, it was also a very collaborative place. People, people just talked to each other about things and gave advice and worked together and did interesting projects. And it, it you know, it's, I, I, I feel like that, that attitude, you know, I think it's easy to get into a mindset of competitiveness and zero sum. And it, it, I don't, I don't, it, you know, I don't know. Life is too short. Yeah. So uh, one more question kind of along those lines. Is, is there anything you would tell yourself as a young scientist just starting off in graduate school uh, that, you know, based off of all the advice that you got and what you know now, all that sort of stuff that you wish you knew or thought, you know, could help you or maybe what was the best thing that you thought of that then? Yeah. So what, what would you tell yourself? You know, um, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I would tell myself anything in the sense because I'm not sure I'd listen to myself. <laughs> it, sounds, right? it sounds like you probably wouldn't. <laughs> you know, but but I but I do think that that you know it's it is important to, to uh, the one the one piece of of advice that I get is is give to myself is 
to really try to find that that line between the 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 openness to listen to what everybody else has to say to you while at the same time the having enough confidence and courage to then commit to something and go do it without waiting for somebody else's permission right because that's it's that balance that's just hard hard to develop and you yeah. and 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 that it's okay if you screw some things up right there's almost there's if you if you if you're nice to everybody else and you act in a generally ethical way yeah then there's almost nothing you can't recover from after that yeah for sure um so do you think that do you, do you think that something you've got better at or do you think that's something you were just kind of good at and refined the skill uh how do you think that played out for you over time yeah um you know i i i think i was a little too arrogant early on yeah i think i think i felt like i knew too much yeah and and was you know i i was i was certainly willing to learn a little but you know i think i one of the things i so in my one of the things i've learned from from playing the saxophone is they one of the things they teach you about jazz is that whenever you sit in with new musicians you should you should listen more than you play yeah because no matter how technically proficient you are no matter no matter how beautifully you can play your instrument if the thing that you play doesn't mesh with what everybody else is doing it wasn't worth playing god that's good and and i think early in my life i played more than i listened yeah yeah and there's probably many a uh, jazz saxophonist who uh, started off that way as well. But yeah, uh, I, I yeah, I don't think <laughs> I, I think it's a common a common affliction. But yeah, but I think I think I I would I think I would would tell myself to listen a little more. Um. So okay. So that's uh that's pretty interesting. So I know improvisation and that kind of mindset is something you talk about in your most recent book. How do you, how do you think that kind of plays out in people's career what would what would you have people understand about improvisation in life and uh career yeah so the one of the things about improvisation is is you have to be willing to take a certain amount of social risk in order in order to do it yeah. and you know I, I think i think that that a lot of times we're people people want approval from somebody the, they want approval from their colleagues or their advisor or the field and you you have to be willing to to take a certain number of social risks in order to do anything that's that's really novel improvisational and those social risks mean that you know if you screw up people may at least temporarily look at you funny yeah and and you know i think that that that's that's probably the biggest lesson. And I, I know when I was learning to play the saxophone, even so here I'm in my mid thirties, I would blow a sour note. I just sort of stop, <laughs> you know, my sax yeah. teacher would say that note is gone, man. Yeah. You know, just keep playing. Nobody knew what you meant to play, you know? And, yeah. and, and so, you know, it's, 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 it's a continual journey of, of being willing to, to use, use what you know to, to, to take a risk to do something novel. I think that's the reason why I've never had a day where I thought I want to just give this up because right. I've, I've never spent too long doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah. So um, if you had a student 
So I, I think that this kind of stuff probably comes uh, a little bit more naturally to you. Um, you're probably on the higher end of being able to, you know, take some of those risks. I mean, like, you know, that just sort of goes well with uh, your mm. personality and that sort of stuff. If you had a student who wasn't as good at that, um, who was struggling with that, who had a tendency to play it safe more often than not, uh, what would what would you tell them? Well, I think I think there's two elements to it, right? I mean, I think on the one hand, it depends a little bit on why yeah. somebody is unwilling to take some of those risks. And I think that, that you can actually practice taking those risks a little bit, you know, get up and give a talk that you didn't intend to give. I mean, that, that is, you know, practice it, you know, be prepared for it, but, but put yourself out there in place in, in places where there's a safety net. So you mean like baby steps be like, okay, yeah. here's, here's something that, uh, you know, is outside of my comfort zone, but only slightly and I can yeah. pull it off and then go bigger right. and bigger and bigger. Right? Yeah. So a little exposure therapy. Yeah. And I think that that's valuable, but I also think that it's also important to know yourself. And, and if you, if you try those things and you take those risks and you succeed, but you still just don't love the process. Well, I think that's valuable information from a career path standpoint. You know, it's, it's not, not, not every career path is the right one for every person. Yeah. You know, I've had, I've had graduate students who, who, who were plenty capable and, and bright and, 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 uh, and good enough to succeed at a research one university who chose to work at universities with a higher teaching load and more opportunities to teach than to do research. And that was absolutely 100% the right choice for them. And I applaud that, right? Because, because there were just, there were elements of some of those kinds of social risks they just didn't want to take. Yeah. I, I think that's great. I think, I think knowing yourself is also really important. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what I, yeah. So what do you think the sort of signals are for knowing when you are getting valuable information about who you are and the right way, you know, the way you should, you know, base your decisions off of that versus, okay, well, this is one of the instances where I should put, push myself to do something that's maybe beyond my comfort zone. Do you think that there is, you know, sort of systematic ways to tell the difference between those those two opportunities. Yeah, um, you know, I, I think I think it, it's never you can never know for sure. Right. But if you if you've really tried, I mean, most of us who could get to the level of having gone to graduate school or succeeded at something, understand what it means to succeed at something. Yeah. And so, if you feel like you've put the kind of effort into something that ought to have made it succeed. And you still hate it. Right. It still makes you miserable. That's a pretty good sign that it's unlikely to get a whole lot better with continued effort. Right. Whereas, you know, if you, you know, there are also times where you shy away from doing something and, and when you look back on it, you realize I, I haven't really put in that full effort yet. Yeah. And, and in those circumstances, then, you know, then I think, well, you ought to, you ought to, uh, maybe, maybe put in a little bit more effort. Yeah. Um, I, I also think along those lines that there's this sort of, uh, sometimes if we prospectively look at something and, uh, think that, okay, well, there's not a very high chance that I'm gonna, um, you know, succeed at it, then we prevent ourselves from doing it in the first place. Whereas at least when you're looking at something new, you have to go out there and do it in the first place because that perspective is not always going to give you the right answer to it. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's 
one of the places where um, people who like to stay in their comfort zone a little bit more, they rely too much on thinking ahead of oh, yeah. what they think is going to happen. Right. Um, and if you go out there and do it and it sucks, well then, yeah, great. You don't have to do it. But um, yeah. uh, given that initial thing. Yeah. Don't, don't edit in the forward direction. Yeah. Um, so one more sort of question about your uh, recent book on Bring Your Brain to Work. Uh, yeah. in, in, this, in this same kind of vein, what do you think are the commonly misunderstood aspects about the mind when it comes to this sort of uh, you know, career selection and that sort of thing? Well, I, you know, I think that, that people are, I, look, my, my least favorite bit of advice anyone ever gives anyone related to a career is to find your passion. As, yeah, opposed, sure. as opposed to just doing things and, 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 you know, learning to love some of the tasks that are associated with it. Yeah. I think, I think that the thing that's most important is, is that you, that you craft jobs and careers that enable you to live in a way that suits your underlying values. Yeah. You know, whatever that is, whether, whether it's, you want to help other people or you want to be known, you know, you want, you want to be achievement oriented and be known for doing something or whether you want adventure, whatever it is, if you live those values, right. you will be excited. Yeah. Even if, even if some of the specific tasks you do day to day are, are not always the most, the things that you would have chosen to do because you feel like it accumulates to something really important. Yeah. Yeah. That's really great. Um, so do you have time for one more question here? Uh, I actually got up. I have a. I, I'm actually supposed to be somewhere in about two minutes. But cool. Well, let's wrap up then. Uh, all all right. right. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. Uh, I really appreciated this, and it was so much fun to talk to you. Got so much great stuff here. Uh, thank you so much, Cody. My pleasure. It's great talking with you, and uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to listening to more of your podcast. Well, that is our show today. Thank you so much for listening. I am Cody Commerce, and this is Cognitive Evolution. If you like what you heard on the show today, uh, please give us a follow on whichever platform you may be listening through. And you can also keep up with future content by following me on Twitter. And perhaps the best way is through my weekly newsletter. So thank you very much for listening and I will see you back here next week.